Good morning, good afternoon, good evening around the world from wherever you're Zooming in from. My name is Doug Brunke. I'm the founder and CEO of Global Chamber, and we have the distinct honor, and we're always pleased to have the wonderful Dan Utzo uh, come in from Dickinson Wright. He's uh, an attorney, he's a partner, he's head of the regional practices. Uh, Dan is someone above and beyond all that is really the premier expert on USMCA. And he always has not just an opinion about trade, but probably the best opinion in the place because Dan has been doing this forever. Uh, it might seem like forever, but it really hasn't been that long, but it has been long enough for him to be able to not just understand it, but to analyze it and then to give business owners the ability to make decisions about it. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about USMCA. Absolutely. We're also going to be talking about trade. And then we're also going to be talking about some of the things that you as a business owner should be doing to prepare uh, for the rest of the year. And then if there's anything uh, that we can, through the crystal ball, decide kind of uniformly, these are definitely some things you should be doing. Uh, uh, Dan will tell us. Um, so Dan, we really appreciate you stopping by. Um, I presume that today you might be uh, in Columbus. Is that Columbus in your background? It is. It's uh, real time there, Doug. Uh, that's Columbus, Ohio on a fall day here, uh, a rainy fall day, but uh, we'll, we'll take it. Um, I want to thank you on, on behalf of, of our firm and also certainly my personal Thanks to you and the entire Global Chamber team for all of your efforts. I mean, it's been an amazing year of programming and this extraordinary year in, in which we're living in. But uh, the Global Chamber programs, whether it's the Globinars or, or so many things that have been out there, um, have really been useful um, and, and value added to, to us as we've been working through. But beyond what everybody's seeing, I think one of the great values of the global chamber tribe, as you call it, or our brothers and sisters around the world that our members have been during these, these times of uncertainty, the ability to reach out and talk to a fellow global chamber member, whether here in North America or beyond, and saying, hey, we have an issue there. Or I know we've been on the receiving end of those calls where you or Cesar or anybody in the network has called and reached out to us and, and said, hey, we got an issue. Can you can you point us in the right direction or or give us a hand? And there's, you know, in, in these times, that's exactly what we need is that ability to to talk to folks around the world and 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 hear what's going on on the ground. And and uh, we greatly appreciate that. And I say that with the deepest sincerity in, in the times in which we're living. And I want to thank all of you, of course, today, whether you're joining today or or as, as I tend to do, I, I don't watch a lot of things live, just there's the fires of the day usually to put out, but um, certainly uh, following things later uh, and watching things either late at night, early in the morning, or when I, I try to get on a treadmill or something like that. But uh, thank you all for allocating your most precious resource, your, your time. I do want to apologize. Um, I know we'll be doing this on, on, on a podcast format as well, so we didn't prepare a PowerPoint. So for those of you on video, you're, you're forced to kind of look at my overly sized cranium. For those of you that know me, you'll probably laugh that Dan's finally admitting he has a big head. 
but it's it's not just figurative. It's actually literal. I, I do have a product, pretty big head in these Zoom calls um, and my big ears. Um, they're good for listening and hearing people's problems, and that's good as a lawyer, I guess. But uh, uh, but you may see from time to time when I'm animated, the, the screen will freeze up. So sometimes I do have to stop the video and restart. So don't freak out if that that happens. Uh, nine, 10 months of Zoom calls have trained us all to put up with these, these technical issues. But uh, as Doug said, you know, here we are in the, the closing quarter of, of 2020, a year that all of us are looking to get behind us. And, and I want to target three things today. Just first, where are we on the, the march to manage trade? Now, I've, I've talked over the years with the Global Chamber about you know, this, this role of managed trade, that we've done a 180-degree turn from um, just several years ago. Just several years ago, we were talking about, you know, a more free trade environment, things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, the TTIP, the U.S. deal with the European Union, and basically a world that was, you know, to borrow a cliche phrase, but a world that was becoming flatter and flatter and flatter and more from the business side, more flexibility and supply and value chains and procurement, caring less about geographic borders and the like. And we've done a 180 degree turn since that time to a world of managed trade, which uh, is one in which we see more tariffs, more quotas, more subsidies, more industrial policy, more voluntary export restraints, the list goes on and on. And it's amazing in that short period of time how we've we've done that twist. And I'll just to give a status report, Doug and I were just talking before the call. We almost forgot about where are we with tariffs, right? Now, where, where are things? So I'll just give a quick status report there. And then I actually look in the second piece, as, as Doug mentioned, I, I appreciate the platitudes, but there's a lot of us out there that work on USMCA and and have been there both from the beginning of this negotiation or this renovation of the NAFTA, but have spent years working on the NAFTA and the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement before that time. And some folks have been around going back to the Canada-U.S. Auto Pact of the mid-60s, so I'm still kind of a young buck in, in that, that limelight when you consider th that durational element. But I think when we look at USMCA, it's important because it's something that a lot of us here in North America are dealing with. and it's really will be running off to the races on USMCA after January 1st. So as, as we go to 2021, it's something that we'll see marching forward. But I also think it, it's a framework. A lot of the discussions around trade we see in USMCA for better, for worse. So I think it's a great, after we provide the broad strokes at the beginning here, talk about how does that look in an actual agreement that'll affect virtually all businesses touching North America. And then I'll just end with a, a few comments on where we see things going. Um, you know, we were laughing, we'll save this for posterity and see if at the end of next year, if we were right or not. But, um, but I think that's a good mix of, of politics. As I've said many times, I, I'm a political independent here sitting in Ohio. I'm not here to give you my political views. Um, but I'll, I'll try to address where the politics look from an objective perspective, uh, and then the policy side, but most importantly, the practicalities. What are we all dealing with on the ground every day, and, and what are those things, practically speaking, in 2021 that we can 
predict, project that at least there that we know that this is highly likely to happen, mid likely to happen, and maybe least likely. Uh, and then hopefully companies can, can react in that way. Coming back to that first point on managed trade, one, one piece that I, I do want to touch on is, you know, and I think I'm as guilty as this as anybody, um, and thinking that, you know, in just a few months, that we will turn the calendar on on December 31st and everything will be different. I'm kind of looking forward to how New Year's Eve looks this year, not because I think there'll be any big festivities. And I'm at the age now where, frankly, if I make it to midnight, it's a miracle. We kind of laugh in our household. You know, we set alarms now, uh, my wife and I and, and our son, so that, well, he's up, but I'm not. Um, but I think it's going to be funny this year uh, New Year's Eve, like how people will be creative and blowing up the numbers 2020 or, you know, burning them and burying the ashes. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of interesting things on social media. But I think we're all in kind of this psychological mindset that we're going to turn the calendar and things will be different. Uh, and the truth is, from a business side, um, the way the world looks on December 31st is, is how it'll look on January 1st and likely throughout the year. I mean, there, there'll be progress in terms of the pandemic, we, we hope. Um, but in terms of the changes for global supply and value chains, um, this will be a decade-long phenomenon. And, and in my viewpoint that, let me just take a step back, I also think that's true here in the United States where many people, and maybe around the world, are thinking that the world's going to change on November 3rd or, or shortly thereafter, and there will be change no matter what happens. Uh, a second administration, Trump administration, will be different from the first, uh, we hope, in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe those policies carry forward. But uh, a, a Biden-Harris administration will be different. But um, the reality is it, it, there, we won't see those significant changes in the short term. Um, and so, there's no magic thing that's going to happen on November 4th or January 1. You know, I, I think us as the business community have to be in the mindset and the businesses that I think are thriving and not just surviving, but thriving in this environment are looking at the pandemic as a, at least a decade long phenomenon. Um, and I, I think of this the same way that the, um, the last decade was shaped by the recession. The decade prior was shaped by 9-11. In fact, I think, and, and this may be my own bias as somebody that came from the, the, the national security, homeland security framework, I think there are very, a, a lot of similarities between right now and the days after 9-11 after and the weeks and months afterwards. But I think if we just look historically in the same way the 40s were defined by World War II and the 30s by the Depression, uh, I just had an interesting conversation recently with uh, not only a great scholar, but an even better friend, Chris Sands at the Wilson Center and, and John Hopkins Sice. And he was suggesting one of the things for the younger, younger folks, people in the 18 to 30 is, will this look like the 20s, the period after the Great War and, you know, 1918 flu, 1718 flu, where I think there, we had the roaring 20s in part because people were so relieved that those horrors were behind them but also had a sense of their mortality. Uh, and then of course, we all know what happened at the end of that decade and 
and certainly later, uh, or will this look more like the 50s, where generations came home from war, saw a world devastated, and you know really created that that economic revival, social change in terms of civil rights around the world, the fall of empires, et cetera, and, and which dynamic are we in? And when I say that this decade, and I'll, I'll quickly move on here, but while it was, I don't think it'll be defined by the pandemic where we are now. That will be a failure on our part if we stay where we are now. But I think it will be shaped by how we we recover, why, how we reemerge from this pandemic. You know, and I, I think that's actually, while it, it seems like I'm starting from a less than positive perspective, I'm actually very optimistic because if you just look at the last decade, you know, toward the end of, you know, in 17, 18, 19, how many of us were really thinking about the recession? You know, there, I think a lot of companies were still getting their sea legs under them, but it was all about recovery and economic growth. And, and some of the, the life that was almost unimaginable. It was almost when you go back and watch movies like The Big Short and things like that, it almost seemed like ancient history, but it really wasn't that long ago. And I think that's certainly true of the great tragedies where many of us lost family and friends on 9-11, that we almost don't think about that in the same way that we did in that, that first decade of the century. So I think what we'll see is this will change us. Uh, and I'm I'm very I, I hate terms like uh, and I use them myself by the way but recovery um, rebound um, resume business resumption um, resiliency is out there but but those implicit in those statements are that things are going to go back to the way they were and I just don't think that's the case um, th this has put us on a course that's an entirely new course in the business community. And we were moving, as I said, in managed trade and elsewhere, but I think what we saw, what the global pandemic has shaped, this is more than just, we'll have to get used to wearing masks for a year or whatever. Um, I, I think about it, I, I just thought about it this morning when I walked into the office, you know, after 9-11, you know, in the old days, you didn't used to have to show an ID at the security desk in most office facilities. Now that's almost just accepted. You check in at the front desk when you come in, right? In most office buildings. Um, that's, that's a function of 9-11. Um, and the same way that now every front desk has hand sanitizer and gloves and masks sitting on it. And I think that'll just be something we get used to in our daily lives are, are these things for the foreseeable future and these changes that, that we see. And, and there's so much innovation in the world and particularly here in North America that it's gonna be exciting. I'm very excited to see when we get past and where we can all be together the, the kind of things that very creative people in restaurants and bars and, you know, the parties and weddings that people will have. It's going to be amazing to watch that pent up demand and, and how people that are much more creative than I am. But on the business side, we have to prepare. And, and one of the major changes uh, I think will be, we're, we're certainly a wake up call was had. We were in that managed trade environment for the last several years. But I think many companies and certainly the public woke up to the phenomenon that people in Ohio and Michigan and the Northeast and, and places like the Carolinas have been saying for a long time that, that we don't make that here anymore and one day there's going to be a problem. And I think a lot of the people woke up and said, what do you mean we don't have enough ventilators or personal protective equipment? And, and, and we saw the great machinery and innovation come together around the world to, to fill that demand and, and we're gradually getting there. But I think it took a lot longer than people thought. 
And I, and I think when people start thinking about steel and aluminum and other things, there, there is a sea change now in, in thinking. And it's not just in a public policy. You know, I spend a lot of my time with healthcare systems. And, you know, what used to be get it to us as cheap as we, you know, obviously with safety and meeting all the appropriate regulations, but we want to make sure that it, it's here cheaply and we're not going to spend a lot of time warehousing and stockpiling. Now it's like, hey, we need a 90-day supply of everything and we don't care how much it costs, right? And, and, that's, and I think that just-in-time to just-in-case environment in which we were living in, and we were gradually moving there after things like Fukushima uh, and elsewhere, that, that's some of the other issues around the world. But I think the COVID pandemic, when kind of coming back into my wheelhouse of trade, is that's what we're seeing, is people are saying, we're not gonna get caught again with our pants down. And I apologize for that kind of graphic reference, but I think that's exactly what happened. That's what, exa that's what happened after 9-11. That's what happened in the recession, right? We got surprised after Katrina, all of that. And then we came back stronger. And I think that's, that's where we are, but certainly not the same. And so looking at managed trade, the march to managed trade, and, and that's an analogy that, or a, a phrase that I used uh, a few years ago, uh, actually on a global chamber, I think was the first time I, I brought that up. Uh, and managed trade, as I said, as well. And it, it hit me just yesterday. I was on a call with um, some lead, some folks in the North American uh, trade space. And there's a meetings that we've been having for years that the, the, the Bush Institute in Texas hosts under the great leadership of Matt Rooney, but it's groups from Canada and Mexico, the U.S., of all different political stripes, all different sectors, and we meet fairly regularly. And then this was before the NAFTA renovation, and then, of course, most of the time has been spent on USMCA. And just yesterday, at the end of that call, the conversation was about, you know, China wanted to take over rare earth elements. Um, and had a policy. So now Canada and the United States have a deal on rare earth elements, and maybe we should North Americanize that and look at how do we subsidize that production and develop policies around that. And then somebody else added, well, how do we do that for electric vehicles? How do we do that for other green energies? How do we develop an industrial policy for North America? How do we align our foreign export controls so that Canada, the United States, and Mexico are doing things the same instead of at times at cross purposes? And kind of the discussion went on and on. And I just said, I texted a friend of mine who was on the call and I texted her and I said, what a difference three or four years makes. I mean, this group of people, we're talking about subsidies. We're talking about industrial policy now on a North American group and nobody's objecting. Um, whereas that would have been blasphemy um, four or five years ago. And I think it's, I think it's just really important that whether you agree with the Trump administration or not, there has to be a recognition on how far the needle has moved. And I go back to where I started is that we've turned things 180 degrees um, from where we were in the days of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and TTIP, and we've now turned it to 180 degrees to a world of managed trade. And the question is, I have a nine-year-old, so maybe this is just me and, and being in the midst of raising a child is anytime a child gets around a button or a knob, every parent reflexively just says, don't touch it, right? Or stop playing with that because every kid's going to twist it, twist it, twist it until it breaks. And I think that's the thing that policymakers have to be very careful of. We've already gone 180 degrees 
And there is a contingent out in the world right now that thinks if things change politically in the U.S. Uh, or things, or perhaps because of the pandemic, that we'll realize that going it alone doesn't work, and we're going to go back another 180 degrees. And to me, that'll be just like that child playing with the knob. Eventually, it's going to break because we we have to appreciate that companies don't move every four years or base decisions every four years, particularly global companies, right? We're dealing with different changes in policies almost nonstop around the world. So many companies are dealing not every four years, but four quarters a year. Um, you know, we're, we're basing our decisions on, in many cases, what does this quarter look like and how do we make sure that we get ahead for our shareholders and investors and elsewhere. And so when you change, we, there's been a 180 degree change toward managed trade. Companies have already reacted. So companies have already changed their sourcing and supply chains and value chains. So if you turn it back the other way, you're gonna leave those folks in the dust. And what kind of behaviors are you incentivizing? So I think in much the same way that I don't think much will change on the ground when we change the calendar on December 31st or November 3rd. We hope it's, I don't care what administration wins at this point. I just hope that we know sometime shortly around November 3rd and that this doesn't drag. Uh, that's not good for, for our democracy and it's not good for uh, our economy. But in the same way, I don't think we should expect big changes in the dial either when it comes to the managed trade. Now, let me drill it down to some specifics. So when we talked before about managed trade, there were five areas that we highlighted. Number one were extraordinary tariffs, which were special tariffs, things like Section 201, which were used on laundry machines. That was really the first salvo that we saw in 1718. And the national security tariffs on steel and aluminum and threatened on automotive products. Um, then we went to the China tariffs, and those were Section 301s dealing with unfair trade practices, but there's a whole litany of other initiatives related to China since that time. And then thirdly, USMCA, which was if we're dealing with things overseas in a managed trade environment, how would those all stitch together in USMCA and then take care of issues in our backyard with Canada and Mexico? And then Fourthly, um, changes at, with other countries. It deals with, I think many of us were thinking at the time when this all started, a deal with the European Union in a, in a post-Brexit world or with the UK in a post-Brexit world. Well, we're, we're still, and I think I've said many times on Global Chamber, just tell me when that's done and, and how that looks, right? And we're, we're still here several years later, still dealing with that issue that deals with Japan, another deals with the European Union generally. Um, there had been a lot of talk of deals with, obviously last night, we just initiated a deal with Brazil um, and deals with the Philippines had been in the works. There had been some talk in deals with Africa, which candidly we're likely not going to get to until uh, a new administration or next administration. And then lastly, what I would say are larger changes at the WTO uh, and the World Trade Organization. And Right now, the World Trade Organization appellate body does not have a quorum. Um, so anything appealed, um, um, freshly appealed, is not being heard. And there's a large initiative underway 
to, to go there. And then beneath the surface, that's what we're doing in the public policy arena, but beneath the surface is how's the private sector reacting. And you know, we've never been busier from an anti-dumping countervailing duty. So US companies and interests bringing claims on, on uh, in, in traditional, traditional fora uh, here in the US in front of the International Trade Commission, the US Department of Commerce, um, those numbers are way up. Um, and, and that is affecting supply chains too. Just ask anybody who's trying to bring in aluminum extrusions right now what the world looks like um, to them. And so, and those aren't Trump tariffs. Those, those, those aren't extraordinary. That's just business getting into the mix. So real quickly, very quickly, and then I'll turn to USMCA and then, and then toward wrapping this up, is on the 232 steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, we, we, of course, one thing that I do wanna emphasize is that um, this will be an issue in 2021. Um, and it's part of both well, the Trump administration doesn't have a platform right now, but the Biden administration has said that it will address steel issues uh, working in the global community. But it, we have to understand how we got here. Keep in mind in 2017, the global community at the OECD, the G20, has, a, has had for a number of years now a global committee on overcapacity of steel. Basically, since China, after the Great Recession, started producing an absurd amount of steel. Um, the global community described that as a plague. There's no dispute that there's a problem. Now, plague takes on new meaning in the times in which we live. But in 2017, the international community, countries around the world, said China's overproduction of steel and other base metals is a plague. Now, what are we going to do about it? And the U.S. And there have been efforts for decades to deal with steel. Uh, in particular. Um, what the U.S. decided at that time, keep in mind most of the folks that came into USTR from, in the, from outside, from outside, not the career level folks, but outside, including Ambassador Lighthizer, were steel warriors. They represented U.S. steel interests. They know the industry as well as anybody. And they said, look, what the international community is doing isn't enough. Because one option, and this may be the option on the table going into 2021, is all of us have to take action on this, all of us around the world. But that's pretty hard to do when at that time Canada was working to negotiate a free trade deal with China. The Germans and the European Union were doing deals. China was had its Belt and Road Initiative where it was investing in countries around the world. So there wasn't, so the question was, how, what are other countries around the world going to do in concert with the United States to deal with what we all recognize in a document as a plague. And the US finally said, we don't think you're gonna do anything. Now those countries' responses, we're already doing a lot, let's give it time to work. And I think reasonable minds can disagree on that, but the US went alone. And the challenge is when you put those tariffs on for national security reasons alone, is you have to put those tariffs on everybody. Because when you have an overcapacity of a product like steel, it's gonna flow to the lowest point. It's like water in your basement, which I unfortunately know a little too much about. In 2020, I've uh, dealt with some flooded basements this year, um, among, uh, among everything else. Um, and so that steel is either gonna come into countries and just flow through it, and all of a sudden that China steel becomes Canadian steel, and so you have transshipment, or you have import substitution. 
which is say Canada, Mexico, or Europe, pick your country in Europe, they'll buy the cheap Chinese steel. But then their domestic manufacturers are going to be out of pocket. So then they have to ship that to where? The place that doesn't have tariffs on it. So if you don't, so if the U.S. doesn't put tariffs on those, that steel will start flooding into the U.S. market as well. Because it'll just, it's pushing, it's water pushing behind the dam. Or for our friends that watch Jurassic Park, it's the dinosaurs testing the fence. I think 60 Minutes just had something on, I caught it the other night, about bears in Montana. And how, you know, with people, more and more people moving there, they're encroaching. It was amazing to watch what these bears can do. But they're constantly testing the fences. I mean, they're brilliant animals, right? They're, they're, they're wonderful. That they, they test the fences and they see where the electric is weak. And boom, the minute it's open, they're in your backyard. And that's what the steel will do. It's constantly looking for a place to go and the private sector will buy it, right? And so the administration had to put tariffs at least when it decided to go alone. At that point, you have to put tariffs on everybody to stop those problems, including your allies. And so of course that created large rifts. And we see this play out as, and, and I'll come back to this in, in, in USMCA, is it played out in USMCA was because the U.S. put Section 232 national security tariffs on Canada and Mexico. And the Canadians were, were aghast because for decades now, the U.S. national procurement strategy for defense says that Canadians are basically considered Americans. We can buy Canadian products. Our, our navies, the U.S. and Canadian navies are the only two navies that are fully integrated in the world. And so the Canadians were saying, how could our steel be a threat? a national security threat. And the response from the U.S. was, we don't think your steel is. We're worried about what we just said, transshipment or import substitution. So you have to get on side with us and put those barriers up. And ultimately, that debate was going on. USMCA was signed in 20, late 2018 without resolution to that issue. And it wasn't until the spring of 2019, May 2019, when the China deal fell through, that Mexico and Canada came knocking on the door of the White House and said, hey, uh, China's not gonna buy your agricultural products. You have tariffs on our steel and aluminum. We're retaliating not only against your steel and aluminum, but because of the way retaliation works, we're retaliating against your agricultural products. You wanna help farmers out in the US? You lift your steel and aluminum tariffs and we'll let you start selling corn and poultry uh, and pour it into Mexico. And that's exactly what happened. And we kind of had a side deal and it was kind of, it was a side letter that basically said, we'll lift the steel and aluminum tariffs in Canada and Mexico will agree to a monitoring mechanism. But the truth was we never put the monitoring mechanism into place. So fast forward to just the last few months, what happened was COVID demand for steel and aluminum dropped, right? In particular, because the auto industry was not buying steel and aluminum because we, they were not making a lot of cars in the first and second quarter of this year. And so what happened is Canadian aluminum producers making good Canadian aluminum were no longer making the aluminum that goes to cars, specialty aluminum. And that was kind of their market is this, this steel, or excuse me, this aluminum that's created for automotive sector. Instead, they said, look, Nobody's gonna buy that. We have to switch to a different type of aluminum that's basically ingots that we can store. Uh, because the other alternative is you shut the aluminum smelter down and you can't. It's very expensive to shut an aluminum smelter, a steel mill, an oil refinery, a chemical plant. You can't shut these places down. I represent a lot of these places. 
not only can you not shut it down because it's expensive, they're very dangerous when they're shut down. You know, these are, these are operations that are meant to run, and, when, and they're meant to run under pressure. And when they don't, gaskets start leaking, seals start drying out and dripping. And so you have all kinds of other problems in your community when those things are shut down. So the, the option was, we'll just keep producing aluminum and put it in an ingot form. Well, unfortunately, that's the space that two U.S. companies operated, and they started using their political influence, one in Kentucky and the other in Missouri. And, and there was a big threat. And there was no question that there was a surge of Canadian aluminum of this new type, but the rationale was because of the times in which we were in. Fortunately, after significant saber rattling, the U.S. had tariffs on for a few months. We've now reached a deal, at least, at least allegedly a deal, but we no longer have tariffs on Canadian aluminum um, coming in right now, largely because um, the U.S. at the last minute said, we think the market forces are, are eliminating that surge, and Canada's agreed to basically a monitoring mechanism, which is just a fancy way of saying a quota. Uh, if, if we start seeing aluminum go up. So it's managed trade. Let's be honest. It's managed trade. We have to call it what it is. But, and I have to tell you, right as that was going on, Mexico and Brazil immediately said, whoa, we'll agree to a monitoring mechanism for steel. And so now we have that monitoring mechanism in place. And so one way to look at, and the, the Aussies have done this, and we see this around the world, that certain countries have said, we agree, we, we agree that we'll put some kind of mechanism in place that captures steel and aluminum demand in base metals. So the question that we have going forward, and the reason why I've spent some time on this is because it just shows you there was an option at the beginning where we could have all worked together, right? And the U.S. said, we don't think you're going to work with us on this, so we're going to go it alone. But the question is, did they get the result that they wanted at the end, which is, countries around the world with marketing mechanisms. Now, there's still major holes around the world in that. And so whether it's the next Trump administration or a Biden-Harris administration, they're going to have to figure that out. Like, where does that stand today? Um, and what we're seeing is a lot of the analysis right now is looking at, uh, is looking at, all right, well, steel mills are closing. Well, I think we see a lot of that in the media. Uh, I think one of the things you have to give the counterpoint, well, how many of those would have closed anyway? Um, I also think one of the things that we're seeing in, in helping to shape this public policy and political debate is, well, for every steel job that was saved, you've created 900,000, uh, you're spending 100,000 to save a steel job, right, at about $100,000 salary, but we're spending because downstream consumers are paying that tariff, we're spending 800,000 dollars to save this job, and, and, and that there's an imbalance there, obviously. One of the things that I've questioned those folks in those economic analysis, I'm a lawyer, not an economist. As soon as the numbers start turning to Greek letters, I, you know, that's where I'm out of my skill set. But what, I, I grew up in a steel town. I grew up working in a steel mill. And it's well-accepted dogma that every manufacturing job creates anywhere between eight to 14 other jobs downstream. And that may be other types. So if you have the steel mill in your town, that may create the folks that do some of the shaping, finishing, drawing out the trucking jobs, the logistics jobs, warehousing jobs. But also it feeds, you know, the diners that feed those folks, the restaurants, the local taxes that are paid that support the schools, that all of a sudden you're creating your next generation of engineers, 
um, and your next great generation of artists and innovators because there's local tax revenue to support those programs. And so my question is, is when you're seeing this analysis, one steel job versus the cost of 800, have those factored in those downstream production? And, and I don't think they do, those analyses, right? So I think we have to be educated consumers. On the one hand, yes, appreciating that we have increased the cost for steel and aluminum users, no question about it. Most of the steel and aluminum tariffs have been passed down. You talk to any company that uses it, I pass it down to my customers, right? On the flip side, we also have to say, is it worth, as a matter of public policy, saving, having that industry? And, and I think one of the things manufacturing has done a very bad job of is communicating its message. We should be using the language of the technology sector. How do you create an ecosystem? So people just say, well, a manufacturing plant is there. Those are the old jobs. Those are dirty jobs. Those jobs are gone. Well, I don't see us needing, lacking a need for steel anytime soon, particularly if you want to have large infrastructure projects and others. You're going to need steel and aluminum to do those jobs and other base metals. Until we become like a Star Trek movie where everything's plastics and polymers, um, you, you know, we're going to need steel and aluminum. And the question is, much like running out of PPE, we're going to need that. So you have to make those decisions. But, but what is a steel mill in your community, that ecosystem, what does that create, that next generation of innovators? When I was a kid coming out of our community, everybody that I knew that was a smart guy, they certainly didn't go become lawyers. Trust me, that's not where they went. All of my buddies went to become engineers at GMI, General Motors Institute, which is now a different name. But People said, hey, I look at my dad on the line, I don't want to do that job, or my mom on the line at Packer Electric Delphi, I'm going to go be an engineer, right? And is, is that the type of behavior we want to incentivize? I want to quickly get off the soapbox there, but I think I'm not saying one way is right or one way is wrong. What I'm saying is we need to actually have an intelligent discussion on, on what does it mean? What, if, if that is our goal, is to create an ecosystem and deal with steel and aluminum, what does that mean? What are the costs? What are the benefits? And not do trade by tweet. Um, but, but the next administration is going to have to decide. You know, saying we're going to work with our allies to solve the steel and aluminum problem isn't enough. We've tried that. What we need to know is what exactly are we going to ask of our allies to do. We've tried it both ways. We've tried it with the carrot, didn't work in the Obama administration. We've tried it with the stick, doesn't seem to be working either. There's got to be somewhere in between to do that. Now, China, and I'll quickly turn to USMCA. China. You know, we've had four lists of tariffs. We had list one and list two, which were the original China tariffs, about 200 quarter of a billion in tariffs, excuse me, quarter of a trillion in tariffs. We, then we had, those were the original tariffs, list one and list two. And then we had what I've described in this forum and elsewhere as the no, you didn't tariffs. China retaliated so the U.S. then went to list three and said, no, you didn't, and put on list three, which were about 300 billion at the time of tariffs. And then list four, to get the ultimate phase one deal, uh, list four was split into two sections, list 4A and 4B. Um, and 4B was the stuff you and I would be buying on the shelves. 4A came close, but not. But lists one, two, and three are basically intermediate goods. So most of us saw it, but it was buried into pricing. It's not like we went to Walmart or Target or, or pick your superstore that you go and, and buy your holiday December toys and gifts for. Um, we, we stopped short of that. But pretty much everything else is hit with tariffs right now from China. 
What we've been doing, it's the definition of managed trade. There, there are folks at USTR that are sitting there looking, we're looking at exclusion requests and said some of this is okay and some of it's not. And what we're seeing over time is exclusions that were granted are not being extended beyond the initial year. That's a process we're in right now. And so a lot of companies that had exclusions no longer will have them. And some are, some are being extended, some new ones are being granted, but it's folks in Washington right now deciding um, what, what is with, with tariff and without. And the reality is when it comes to China, there's nowhere else to go. There's really nothing left to tariff except consumer goods that we'll see on the store shelf. So in my view, we've, we've actually reached the, the, the edge. We're, we're a little bit like the, the old Roadrunner cartoons where after the guy falls off the cliff or um, Roadrunner or, or uh, Yosemite Sam or whatever, and they're holding on to that little branch, right? We can't, we, we fall into the abyss on tariffs if we go to the next step, and there's no way we're going to do that in the middle of a recession. So we've pretty much tariff everything we can with, with China from a Section 301 tariff perspective. What some of one of the big issues that's out there that I think for the business community is that there is now a legal challenge to list three tariffs and list four A tariffs. Um, there was a, a case filed last month uh, that basically says that USTR, when they did the additional lists, that they didn't go through the process. And there is some precedent on, on the steel case. There's a, some challenges on Turkey. For the most part, courts have said the Trump administration was able to do what it could do, except when it goes on the initial tariffs. But when it goes the next step and kind of tries to squeeze a country, and we did that with Turkey on the tariff, that the court said, no, 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 you went too far with that. And people are taking that same logic and saying, when the U.S. did list one, list two, that was okay. But list three and list four, you didn't go through the process. You just tried to squeeze China in the trade negotiations. And so it is right now, I believe, it's not the largest, the second largest trade case ever filed at the International Trade Commission, um, challenging, challenging those list three and list four. There was a big push. Many of you probably got things from your customs broker saying that this needed to be filed um, by September. Actually, I don't agree with that. There, there's a two-year statute of limitations, so people were going back to the day that um, the tariffs were imposed. I actually think it could be the date that your tariffs were liquidated, your that your entries were liquidated, which is usually about a year later, or when your exclusions were denied. So if you haven't got in on that case, there's still an opportunity to do that. I also believe, much like we did with the harbor maintenance tax, that was the last case of this size, uh, that at the end, um, the, the courts basically, the court never made like an official, well, actually the, the, the law of the land right now is that if the tariffs were void from the beginning, they're void for everybody. There is no statute of limitations. Uh, but the Supreme Court kind of signaled at the time it was willing to overrule that. And ultimately, political pressure stepped in. U.S. Customs set up a fund and refunded everybody's harbor maintenance tax tariffs. That is likely, in my view, what will happen again. But that's going to play out. But I think we will see a lot of activity in 2021 on the China, on the China tariff front. Is I don't see the Trump administration rolling back the tariffs, and I don't see a Biden administration rolling back list one and list two. Like what I do see is some activity around list three and list four. But the question is what, what is China gonna do to get that, right? Um, 
it, it, it would be a significant problem if all of a sudden a new administration comes in and says, China, you've done nothing to correct your behavior, but we're rolling back tariffs to give a, an economic stimulus in the arm. There's going to need to be some quid pro quo for that. And I think that's what will play out. Um, so I would expect some movement on the list three, list four A tariff. I don't see any movement on list one and list two. In fact, I think I've said almost from the day that they went on that those will be tariffs into perpetuity. Um, and and to, unless we see significant changes, and where I'll just end on China right now is to say that the China tariffs, uh, in my view, we've, we've kind of stopped from tariff tariffing in the president's language, uh, China, to now a series of behind the border issues. Things emanating from, from Huawei, whether it's Huawei, whether it's issues on semiconductors, whether it's issues around uh, Hong Kong's national security and sanctions for that. I think foreign investment reviews, uh, so CFIUS, Firma, that's where the fight with China is going to be. We're not going to be fighting because both sides recognize that tit-for-tat tariff wars aren't going to work. It's going to be more export controls. China's export control regime just went into play within the last few days. That's where to keep your eye out. So the, they, they likely have the effect of tariffs. They're managed trade, by the way. But it's not going to get the headlines like a tariff will. And there may be some good news that 3 and 4A get rolled back. But the China conflict is not going away anytime soon in 2021, in much the same way that I think the pandemic will define this decade implicit or embedded in that is, is what's happening with China. Um, and one thing that I do caution, I think a lot of the things we see in the media and elsewhere is that, um, well, we've surveyed um, all of the companies in in AmCham Canada, the American Chamber of Commerce in Canada, Shanghai, and 70% of them say that the tariffs didn't change their positioning in China, meaning that U.S. companies aren't moving back from China. Of course, that's true. Most U.S. companies aren't in China to manufacture and sell back to North America. They're in China to, to reach the U.S., excuse me, to reach the domestic China market and the rest of Asia. Uh, and so those companies' tariffs aren't impacting them, right? And, and uh, the only way they're being impacted is from retaliation at things within China. And so the China, and, and so what we really have to do is canvas procurement managers, purchasing officers in North America, and say, did these China tariffs make you start purchasing things not from Chinese companies, but are you purchasing components from elsewhere? And I guarantee you that number is quite likely around 70% as well, the other way that people are saying, we got to get out of China and go to Vietnam or go to Mexico or go or pick your Malaysia as another one. You know, so what we're seeing over the last 18, 24 months is a lot of companies moving production out of China. And so the question is, was that a win for the administration? Did the administration achieve one of its objectives, which is to get those intermediate goods out of China and into countries where we have more influence? And I think that's where the jury's still out. But if we go back, if you turn that knob 180 degrees the other way, all those companies that just made tens of millions, hundreds of million dollars investment decisions to resource their supply chain, that'll be for naught. So you have to be very careful when you do those dramatic, those dramatic swings, right? And so lastly, uh, and, and now I'll come, I, I just want to address the, the, the I, I talked about 
points four and point five. We do have a trade agreement with Japan. We do have now a trade agreement with Brazil, which is kind of interesting. Congress isn't happy about it because of, of kind of a, the political the political regime in Brazil is is not one that 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 the most of U.S. Congress believes is is operating consistent with democratic values. Um, Japan is, is a little bit more positive deal, but all of these are kind of half trade deals. Um, the Brazil deal deals with some some technical issues, regulatory harmonization, a few other issues. The Japan deal deals with some longstanding agricultural issues, some issues around autos. We did a deal with Korea, of course, early on. Um, but these are smaller deals, and they are shaping supply chains. But interestingly, they're they're bilateral. And then the fifth point was was WTO reform, which uh, if I could pro prognosticate that, uh, you know, I I just give all my money to the global chamber and, and Doug would live the high life for the rest of his life because um, there's significant reforms happening at the WTO, but uh, the WTO does nothing quickly. Um, and so I think that will be playing out in 2021. Uh, as we'll see, there's a new director general that that election is underway. Um, the final two candidates are, are there. Uh, there are a number of countries led by Canada and a number of other countries that are coming up with some proposals right now. The U.S. does not seem to be supportive of any of those proposals, or at least the, the, the big sticking issues. So uh, it's something to keep an eye on. That, And what that means is the WTO as a check on managed trade is, is not there. Um, and, and cases filed are not going to stop companies as we go into recovery mode. So right now, where does that leave us? Well, I, in my view, the safest place for trade investment in the world is North America, largely due to USMCA. Now, I've said this many times at the Global Chamber and, and many other places, we didn't rip up NAFTA. 60% of it's the same as NAFTA, a new agreement. Um, we did, it's not a rebrand. 40% is different. And 40% of a trillion dollar economy is a lot. We renovated the NAFTA. Uh, and we put on fresh coats of paint. We upgraded the fixtures and appliances, and we knocked down some walls. I've given the USMCA talk many times, but I, what I want to focus on now in the next five minutes or so is just what are the, the big issues that are out there? Well, right now we're in phase one of USMCA, which is start USMCA is in full force and effect with the limited exception of some certifications around automotive, labor value content, steel and aluminum. USMCA is in effect. So anybody that's claiming zero tariffs or NAFTA, old NAFTA preferences now USMCA, you have to be in compliance. Now, there's a six-month period that ends on December 31st where USCBP is basically not, and Canadian Customs and, and Mexican Customs are not enforcing the agreement. So basically, you're getting a letter that says you've, you've claimed NAFTA preferences, you need to show us this, and since you haven't, you know, you have some time to work through it. We're not going to fine you. There's some great language, good faith, satisfactory progress, maximum restraint, maximum flexibility. The bottom line is it's the no jerk rule. As long as you're not being a jerk, you're not, USMCA is not being enforced. The downside of this is I think it's lulled companies into a view that just because we complied with NAFTA, we, we comply with USMCA. And that's not the case. Just because you haven't heard anything yet, it's because we're in this honeymoon period. I don't like to call it a honeymoon period. It's more like a 2020 wedding. 
you know, so many of us have family and friends in 20, that were going to have big wedding in 2020 that just said, hey, we're going to go get hitched at the courthouse or in our faith tradition and have a real small event, and then we'll do the reception later. That's what we're living in in USMCA. We're hitched. It's formal. It exists. But we really haven't had the big coming out party yet, the reception. And so that's where we are right now. One thing where the world will change when that calendar does turn on December 31st is USMCA. And the biggest thing is that I want to emphasize to companies is you have to do the analysis under USMCA. Just because you were compliant under NAFTA does not mean you're compliant under USMCA. In fact, every company needs to tweak, most need to transition, and, and some companies need to completely transform what they're doing. Now, we've worked with thousands of companies. I can tell you the companies that go through it, it's not as painful as they think it is, it's not as expensive as they think it is, and they're finding great benefits in areas like chemicals, polymers, coatings, electronics. People are finding really good news in USMCA. Now, what do I expect in the future? Three areas that are really hot right now. One are labor issues in Mexico. Mexico is undertaking under its domestic law a complete reform of its labor regime. That's a constitutional reform that came in in 2017, is now enforceable under USMCA. Most of the large OEMs, the major companies operating in Mexico, have been working with trade associations and are sending all of their suppliers in Mexico a survey that asks them for about 40 legal conclusions as to whether they're complying. They're calling it a scorecard. It looks pretty harmless. Do you allow free and elected rights? And I'll, let me just say this. You're told it's confidential. It's not. There's no privilege. So you should assume that that information gets out. And if you receive one of these scorecards, all I can say is don't have your purchasing people fill it out. Consult with counsel because you're making legal conclusions in it that if there is an investigation, and for many companies there will be, that that's now evidence of what you've said. So keep that in mind. We understand that there will be aggressive um, attempts at unionization in Mexico over the next several months. Uh, in fact, AFL-CIO has said at the start of September they plan to bring labor cases by the end of that month. I think COVID has slowed that down, plus the U.S. election. And there's been uh, UAW elections in Canada, and AFL-CIO has some other things going on. But labor reform in Mexico will define North America for the next three to five years. Additionally, changes in the automotive sector. Uh, we've talked a lot about these in past Global Chamber events, but what's happening right now is all of the auto companies have reached out to their suppliers and have said, initially, up until before July, was do you comply with USMCA? And people would have to enter that online. And so that's where a lot of our work was. Now the requests are coming out, do you comply with the labor value content rule, the $16 an hour rule? So I think that's where we're going to see how does the auto sector shape using USMCA going forward. And, and I think to me, that's a big one. And then I also think we're going to see some one-off disputes in uh, on things like dairy from Canada, um, permitting of agricultural products going into Mexico. So uh, I think starting in 2021, we will see a number of disputes brought under NAFTA, or excuse me, under USMCA. USMCA didn't prom promise dispute-free trade. It promised a vehicle through which to analyze trade. So, but nevertheless, 
it has created the most stable market uh, in the world right now through which to engage and trade. The challenge that we have in North America, and I say this with love to our Mexican friends, and I do a lot of work in Mexico. Um, Mexico's got seriously challenges around COVID right now that largely aren't being reported in, in U.S. and Canadian media. And Mexico's government has is, is got an austerity package out there. There's also a referendum to put the last free, free, uh, five presidents on trial. Um, Large-scale infrastructure reform that may not be able to be paid for. Um, so there are significant issues, whereas when companies were getting out of China, I think the thought would be a lot of that sourcing would go to Mexico, and it did in the early days, and that that would strengthen North America. We have seen a lot of investment scheduled to go into Mexico put on hold until a lot of these issues shake out. So I think one of the things to watch in 2021 is how does Mexico, what's going on in Mexico, because that's tied back to China. Because if companies are leaving China from a sourcing perspective, they're not leaving those companies that went there to sell into China and Asia, but from sourcing. If sourcing's leaving China and not going to Mexico, it's going to Vietnam or Malaysia or other parts of the world. And what does that mean for discussions around a TPP or U.S. entry entry into the TPP and elsewhere. So those are the things there. You know, I, I've I've included. I said I would do prognostication at the end. I think I've included it in most of my comments. I just think those are the issues to watch uh, across the board. Uh, but I think the key takeaway here is I don't expect a change after November 3rd, and I don't expect a change. On January 1, we are still on the march to manage trade. The, the, the trade brigades are scattered right now. And the question is going to be, how does the next administration, whether that's a Trump administration or whether that's a Biden administration, how do they pull those brigades back together and launch a new battle plan? But I don't think we will see a retreat. Uh, we may see offenses in different areas, but I think for companies, that's that's the focus. That's where our attention needs to be, and getting to in a level of acceptance that that's the way the world's going to look for the foreseeable future. And uh, with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Doug. I appreciate that, Dan. Uh, great information. Like you said, you've embedded all of that together. I've got several pages of notes. Uh, what we'll do is we'll uh, work to get a blog post up that has a lot of this content, and of course, the recording that some of you are listening to now after the fact. Great information. One just quick question. I'll only have about 30 seconds to a minute. How, how should people interact with you? You mentioned a couple things about the analyses that you do. You also mentioned about the scorecard and getting legal advice relative to filling anything out. What are the normal ways and what do you recommend people um, uh, do to, relative to contacting you around specific problems for their business? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's, it's very simple. People always have a fear factor about calling legal counsel. They think the meter's running. Um, that's not how we practice. I mean, for us, it's usually, my goal is to have you trading, right? It is to be in business. Um, we, we do have packages, um, and, and I don't want to sound like a car salesman, but we've been through the USMCA analysis so many times that it's, it's streamlined. Here's the data you need to give us. Here's those kind of things, et cetera. If there are other issues that folks are dealing with, we find, a, you know, we have a number of, of lawyers. We have great resources here. But, but our goal is pick up the phone and call somebody. I, I think trying this at home or on your own 
is a path to disaster. Um, and, and I know that's what every lawyer says or accountant or banker, but the truth is that's what the global chamber, that, that's one of the great advantages of the global chamber is there's a network of us that are willing, that are always available to pick up the phone or, or email or Zoom, Skype, whatever, and talk and say, here's your issues, here's where we think you need to go, and, and here's your game plan. And, and then you can make the, the, the educated business decision as to where to go, as opposed to just trying to Google it and figure it out on your own. That's what Global Chamber provides, and that's why you know I think we're proud members uh, uh, of that. Fantastic. You've done a really great job of pulling it all together. Um, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, contact Dan, and if you have trouble getting a hold of him, can't find him, send an email to info at globalchamber.org, and we'll get you guys connected. Thanks. Again, uh, any last comments that you'd like to make to button it up? Well, all I'd say is I noticed in some of the chat, I'm not necessarily necessarily agreeing with the march to manage trade. My personal views are really irrelevant at this point. Uh, my view is I'm, I'm trying to object, objectively put out there what what I think we're going to see and how our businesses can pre can prepare. What I'm very always very fearful of is when people get caught up in in media or elsewhere, and I think the, the, the journalism is very important to our democracy, but um, it, it's always attacked, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, and I think what we need to do is start looking at what we did and where we are, and then where do we want to go, and, 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 and get to that point and make uh, decisions based on facts, as, as opposed to just a reflexive reaction to it was Trump, so it's wrong, or it's Biden, it's wrong. Like, we, we, have, to, we have to make sure that we have a clearly stated objective. And I think that is the one thing that we need going into 2021. Because it feels a lot like um, the managed trade is the whack-a-mole type of thing. Um, and maybe the good news out of that is that we've learned a lot of things not to do. Um, um, and that um, uh, the question then is, you know, this, this world going forward, um, you know, will it be a little bit more orderly and more predictable? And I guess we're going to find out. Uh, and, and, uh, and you've laid out some optimism relative to, you know, no matter what happens on election day that, you know, we're going to have, uh, if you will, better managed trade uh, because we've, we've, we've made some mistakes, but it, it is the way it is. And so those of you who have run businesses out there, don't delay, you know, get your business well understood so that you're ready for 2021. And so that this protocol that Dan talked about relative to them kind of giving you this break until, you know, uh, as, as long as you're not being a jerk, uh, we don't have any members that are jerks. So that's the good news, but still there are things that you need to be doing to get ready for, for this future. And so thank you for listening today. Thanks again, Dan, and everybody have a great day. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Great, great conversation, great information.